Well, good morning. I'm just curious if you're here this morning, would you raise your hand? I always do that just to check. So some of you are here. I'm going to talk. Good morning. It really is uh, always a a rare pleasure and a privilege uh, to be at this church, to be at Renaissance. Uh, It's even better when when Rich Teeters is not here. I'm just being honest with you because he glowers at me. Now, if you don't know what glowers means, just look at Rich next time I speak. You'll see. Uh, no, he, uh, he's been very kind uh, to, uh, to invite me to speak to you twice. I only really have enough for one message, so, uh, but I'm going to say it differently this time. Uh, if, uh, if I say it the same, um, then I'll say it different the next time I'm here. But what, one of these times, I'll, I'll say the same thing differently. What did I just say? I don't know. Can you tell that I didn't get a lot of sleep last night? Uh, it's very important to know that going into this talk, because it's going to be a little formless. I don't know if you uh, learned in high school, like the, the, have you ever heard about the keyhole essay shape? This is what they taught me in 10th grade. When you're writing an essay, it's supposed to be in the shape of a keyhole, right? You start broad, then you go down to your thesis sentence, then you kind of expand on it, and then you go back out to the, you, you, you familiar with that? No? Okay. What about, um, what about a three-act uh, uh, movie script? You know how that, how that goes, right? All right. I know. It's a, it's a secular kind of image culture. Um, the shape of, of my talk, it's like, it's not exactly a three-point sermon. It's sort of like, do you know what a Mobius strip is? How many people know what that is? We're going to end up in the same place except upside down. But if, if you come to the next service uh, and do it again, you'll end up back where you started. So, I, I don't know. It's the sleep talk, the lack of sleep talking. Well, I'm glad to know that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm the favorite guest speaker and the only guest speaker. Logic would dictate that I'm also the least favorite guest speaker. Isn't that true? Isn't that? I know. Follow the logic, it's frightening. I want to talk a little bit about following the logic um, this morning. I used to be shorter. Uh, hang on a second. There we go. Um, I, want to talk about, uh, I want to talk about a lot of stuff this morning, but uh, I only have about 25 minutes, so I'm going to talk fast. Um, I, I, I wanted to... Uh, re- last week, now, or just, I'm sorry, two weeks ago... I talked about William Wilberforce. I'm curious, how many of you heard that talk? How many of you were here? And how many of you heard that talk who were here? Right, I know. Um, basically, it's, it's the sort of, it's how I got to talk. I mean, it's how I came to uh, talk about what I'm talking about this morning. Was After that talk, I had uh, lunch with some folks. And we were just having some fun, just throwing ideas around. And I... Um, was talking about something that I can never stop talking about, which is what I always call the, the secularization uh, of our culture because of, because of our media culture. Now, if that doesn't mean anything to you, hang on, because in 10 minutes from now, it still will not mean anything to you. But in, maybe in 25 minutes, it'll mean something. Um, but we got talking about one of my favorite topics, which is the idea of how did we get where we are in the culture. It's something that I think about a lot, and I'm actually going to be writing a book about it, uh, called War and Peace by Tolstoy. Have you heard of that? All right, I know, now I know you're listening. Okay, so now I'm going to start now. Um, but uh, I will be writing a book about it because I think that it's important to understand who we are and how we got to where we are in our culture as Christians. Now, the reason I say that is because if you just go with the flow in life, in the culture, uh, you can get to some really bad places, right? Last week I talked about William Wilberforce, who was living in a culture that thought of itself as Christian. Now, American culture, we wouldn't say that we're a Christian culture. We just say we're, we're America, and we have separation of church and state and, and whatever. But in England, 200 years ago, 
they would have actually said, you know, we're, we're a Christian culture because we believe in, uh, they didn't really have the separation of church and state. Did you know that? I think some of you knew that. Um, and so they thought of themselves as a Christian culture, but they were not really a Christian culture. Just in name, they were a Christian culture. And part of where they flowed as a culture was to accept slavery. They, they, never, they never questioned that. And that really got me thinking about our own culture. And I touched on this a couple of weeks ago. What does it mean to be a Christian or to have faith? And, and what is the nature of truth? Because if you're in a culture that says slavery is okay, on what basis do you say, no, it's not? Now, we can all sit here very, very uh, arrogantly in a way say, well, pfft. We know that that's wrong. You know, we know it's wrong. But wh- why are we better than the people 200 years ago who just kind of went with the flow? How do we know that it's wrong? Based on what? What do we base right and wrong on? How can we just cavalierly say, well, I, I know slavery is wrong, and if I were living then, I would be you know, signed up with Wilberforce against the-, against the culture of his day. We say that, but the scripture tells us that's not true. It tells us that every generation of human beings. It's just like any other generation of human beings. We face the same challenges, except they're different challenges. But we all face something. So in the day of Wilberforce, he faced this vast uh, idea, this, this institution called slavery and the slave trade, which we see as egregious and which Wilberforce saw as egregious, but which most good people in that day didn't. And so we have to ask ourselves, why is that? How can an entire culture accept something? And as I say, it got me to think about our culture and what is it that we're accepting that we say, well, I don't have any problem with that because nobody else really has a problem with that except those strange people who are protesting, you know, outside the whatever, you know. But most people know that such and such is fine. Well, as I say, 200 years ago, most people thought slavery was fine and a lot of other strange things that went on that we today say we know aren't fine. So, So the question is, how do we understand when the status quo is bad, when we need to stand against the status quo. So uh, let me tell you a little bit about um, my biography, the the very brief version. But uh, I grew up in Danbury, Connecticut. I think I said that my parents are European immigrants. My dad came from uh, Greece. My mom came from Germany. I grew up in the Greek Orthodox Church. So we weren't really serious uh, Christians. We went to church uh, every week. But uh, for most people in the I think what I would call ethnic churches, it's very much a cultural experience. That doesn't mean it's not a Christian experience, but it's very much a cultural experience. And for me, I didn't really learn too much about uh, the Christian faith. I didn't know anything about the Bible. Uh, I knew there was a, a book, um, but that was, re- that was really about it. Uh, that's about it. And um, so I didn't if somebody said to me, are you a Christian? I would have said, well, absolutely, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a Greek Orthodox Christian. But if they started probing and said, well, what do you believe about this? And what do you believe about that? Do you agree with this? Christianity teaches this. Do you, you agree with that? I really wouldn't have known what to say. I was a kind of a go-with-the-flow kind of guy. I just thought, well, I'm a, I'm a good person, and I live in America, and you know, we do our best. We have democracy. It's a free country. And I realized that I didn't really know much. Um, and I think that... Um, my parents, they were not politically conservative or they were not serious Christians in an evangelical sense. But coming from Europe, we always had an outside perspective on America. So while I was growing up, uh, I would get my parents' perspective on the culture. And it was very clear to me growing up that 
something was wrong with what was coming off the TV set. And I'm not just talking about PBS. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, something was wrong. I got the sense, sitting in front of the TV with my folks, that a lot of the stuff that was coming off of there was at odds with what they were trying to instill in me, the, the values that they were trying to give me. And as I say, it's not that my parents had uh, any really strict idea about right or wrong, but they just, you know, when you talk about homespun values, there were not homespun values coming off of the TV during most of my uh, growing up. And um, when I went to college, I went to Yale, which uh, used to be a good school, like in uh, the, the, I think in the 70s, uh, like for example, the 1770s, it was really <laughs> top-notch, really top-notch. Nathan Hale went there, you may have heard of him. And after that, it was kind of like, began to slide. Um, and I did want to, I did actually, we joke, but... Uh, I wanted to talk about that for a second. Because as I went to college, I was wide open. I was a kid open to learning what is truth, right? How many people remember who said that, what is truth? Kind of a, a villain in the Bible, right? Nonetheless, it's a good question. What is truth? And I was asking the question, what is truth? And at Yale, what I picked up, I began to find out what it was that my parents when they were, you know, sort of watching the TV and, and, and saying that the values coming off here do not square with what we want to impart to our kids, I began to figure out why that was. And uh, if I had a map here, um, I know you guys would have provided me a map if I asked one because you guys are AV awesome. I'm like 19th century guy. I'm just going to say it. But um, it's an interesting thing. If you think about the way values were transmitted before, say, 1950, I'm speaking loosely, it was mostly local, right? In other words, you know, you'd pick up your local uh, values, what your parents taught you and your, what, what, what was in your sort of uh, town or whatever. That's how you'd pick up your values. Very few people here remember that. But something happened from the, from the 50s, let's say, onward, and that's what I would call the rise of the media culture, right? We didn't really have a media culture so much before that. But increasingly, mainly because of TV, but we had more and more media in our everyday lives. It was, it was almost impossible to escape it at some point. To today, it's, it's, it's pretty much impossible to escape it. I mean, people wearing T-shirts saying things on them, buses going by uh, with messages on them. Wherever you look, there is uh, information coming at you. And what I think happened, which uh, I don't... You, you really don't much hear people talk about this, but it's a fascinating concept... As the media culture rose, in a sense, New York and Hollywood became the purveyors of ideas, right? And it's not like somebody planned that out, unless you believe in Satan. And actually, I do, but we'll talk about that another time. Um, But, you know, it's not like some conspiracy. You know, let's take over the two sources of water and then... uh, Everybody who drinks water across the country will be drinking our water, and we can control what's in the water. Well, nobody did it with water, but it was done really with ideas. And again, this is not like some conspiracy theory. It's just kind of the reality. I think if you, you know, look around, you'll see if you're flipping around on the TV or you go to the movies or whatever, the ideas that are coming off of the, the screen, so to speak, are manufactured in, let's say, Hollywood and New York, pretty much. You know, you don't get too many Indiana 
based movies. Uh, now, Bollywood, that's a whole other thing. We're not going to get into that. I'm sticking to our continent this morning because we don't have a lot of time. But, uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, we got a Bollywood fan over here. But what's interesting, and those of you know who Oz Guinness is, he's spoken at Socrates in the City a number of times, but, but the idea that New York and Hollywood just happen to be the two most secular places on the map, like, right? In other words, if, if you go across America, you're going to find a lot more faith of, of any kind. I'm not just talking about Christian, whatever, than you're going to find in Hollywood. Hollywood and New York are almost famously secular. It's sort of like crazily secular. So that if you hang out there, you'll never bump into anyone who actually believes all this crazy Jesus stuff, right? Because, you know, you'd have to be nuts to believe that, obviously, because none of my friends believes it. That, that kind of a thing. And so I noticed while I was at Yale that there was something that I would call the, the cultural elites, right? You know, Dan Quayle said that years ago, people made fun of him. But, you know, there's, there's truth to it, basically, that there is a way of thinking, and this is what I was picking up as the open-minded student going to a place like Yale, I realized that there's a way of thinking about truth and so on and so forth. And what that is, ultimately, is that uh, you don't want to hold truth too tightly, right? Because people who do that become fanatics, become fundamentalists, and they blow stuff up, Right? We've all seen it happen. Um, and so it's kind of a fear of the concept of holding truth too tightly. Now, if you're a Christian, that presents a problem. Because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So how do you square what the scripture says with kind of the messages you're getting? And it was very easy. The way I squared it was I, I, I chucked the Christianity, and I had a good time. Have you heard of that? It's, uh, yeah. Um, but in a sense, there's a lot of societal pressure to do that. And as I say, this kind of thing, this got me thinking because I thought Wilberforce lived in a culture that when he said slavery was wrong, people really thought, you are absolutely nuts, Mr. Wilberforce. You are a fanatic. You're a Christian fanatic. We reject you. What you're saying is economic suicide. It is uh, unpatriotic. It's, um, it's just wrong. And Wilberforce said, listen, I don't really have any choice about what I'm telling you. What I'm telling you I get from the scriptures. The scriptures are true. Slavery is wrong. I, I, don't, know what, I don't know what to say. I'm going to have to stand right here, and I'm going to have to fight for what I know is right and wrong. And um, he had the courage of his convictions because he didn't say slavery is wrong because I say that it's wrong. He said slavery is wrong because God says that it's wrong. Um, now, we know that there's slavery in the Bible, and some people even say this, that, that the Bible countenances slavery. That's not true. There's a, the Bible basically reflects the culture, and there was all kinds of horrible things going on in the culture, the way women were treated, the way everything, uh, you know, that doesn't mean God approves of it. God is sort of saying, you know, this is, this is culture 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. But what, what God says in the Bible is very radically different from what most cultures teach. What most cultures teach... Uh, is one thing. That's what the Bible calls the world, right? The Greek word is cosmos. And uh, comes the root word is, you know, cosmos is like cosmetic, the surface, right? In other words, this world that we live in uh, presents sort of a, a cultural message to us. And the Bible always stands against that. Uh, not in every way, not in everything, but in many fundamental things. So, as I said, when I was at Yale, I was thinking, so what is truth? I was really trying to figure this out. I'm saying, I want to I be successful in life. And uh, so how do people think? What's the story? And the idea that I got was, as I say, kind of the worldview of the cultural elites. You know, and again, I'm not trying to, to demonize people. A lot of these people are my friends. Uh, 
In fact, a lot of them are my friends. But you realize that it's the idea that we don't want to hold truth too tightly, as I just said. Um, if you go into the, uh, the library, the Harkness um, Library at Yale, there are all these really cool carvings all over the place. And there's one, I'll, I'll never forget. You, you can see it. When you go into the main library, I'm sorry, Sterling Library at Yale, if you ever go to New Haven, it's worth checking out because it's really cool. But you go into this thing, it looks like a cathedral which is interesting in and of itself. And you, you walk in and you go way down to the circulation desk and just say, uh, Eric sent me, and then make a right. Just don't, don't look him in the eye because he'll stop you. Just make a right, and you'll see all of these carvings. And uh, there, some of them are meant to be funny and stuff like that, but there's one that kind of summed up uh, some things. Um, it's this idea... Well, let me tell you about the carving first. There's a carving of a student at a desk, hunched over. I think there's like a beer stein in front of him, right? So he's like studying, but there's like a beer stein in front of him. And the book in front, this is all carved in stone. It's pretty wild, right? But check it out. Um, the book says, it, on, on the left-hand page, there are three letters. U, R, A. And the right-hand page says, Joke. Right? You are a joke. So, you know, so in a weird way, what it's saying is the sum of all wisdom is you are a joke, right? Now, we know that on some level, the carving itself is a joke. It's trying to be silly. But I thought this is very interesting because it represents, you know, a nihilistic view of the world that there is no meaning, that there is no truth, that this idea of truth is somehow not something that we can intellectually uh, take too seriously. But we want to take the idea that there is no truth sort of lightly. You know, we want to be witty as we're saying there's no meaning, uh, which is kind of sad, actually. Um, it's kind of like life's a bummer, then you die, right? Except, you know, in, in joke form. Um, no one can really face that. That's, that's really too painful. But I would submit to you that the culture uh, in which we live, with a kind of a sad smile, says... That, that, is, that is the case, that when you're looking for ultimate meaning, in other words, the Bible clearly says there is ultimately meaning. God is the source of all meaning. Uh, there's good news. God loves you. He created you. That whole concept uh, is something that, that is very clear from, from the Christian faith and from Scripture. But if you don't know that, where do you get your meaning from? Uh, does life have meaning? Are you a joke? Are you just something that evolved by chance? In other words, that you got here without, there was no God directing the process of your birth, uh, of, the, of the invention of human beings and whatever. To face that is really dark, you know? And I think that there have been very few philosophers in history that can actually face meaninglessness. I think uh, Nietzsche faced it, and he went insane, that's true. Um, Bertrand Russell uh, faced it, and he drove a lot of people insane. Um, but it really is, it's a very dark idea. But I think to be intellectually honest, you have to say, well, is, is that true? I think sometimes John Updike is kind of saying that, like, you know, there's no meaning to life, but our dignity, our nobility is in being able to face the idea that there's no meaning. Um, that's, that's really sad. But when I was in college, I wanted to know, is that true? Like, I want to know what's, tr- what's true. Um, I think that the message that the culture sends today, as I said, because, because most of it is coming from Hollywood and New York, it's not intentionally nihilistic. But if you don't know what the Bible says, if you don't know that God says, I created you in my image and I love you. Now, there's a lot to to work out from there, 
if you say, you know, you, there, there's a lot more to the story. But to accept that idea that you are not the product of pure chance, therefore your life actually has meaning, it's, it's very, very, very powerful because when life gets you down, you can say, well, you know what? God made me. He loves me. He has a purpose for my life. And no matter what comes against me, I know that that is true. Now, when the chips are down in life, I don't know what your struggles have been in life, but if you face real difficulty, unless you really know that, that life has meaning, that life is not meaningless, unless you really, really know that and then are surrounded by people in your life who know that and who will say to you, no, 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 you're really depressed today, but let me tell you what's true. One plus one equals two. God loves you. These things are true. Don't let your feelings confuse you. Unless you really know that when the chips are down, life can overwhelm you. And uh, I, I mean, I've suffered from uh, depression in my life. I've really gone through some stuff. And I realize that at the lowest moments, if I didn't really know that God loved me and had a plan for my life, that that was true. We don't tell ourselves these things because they help us to get through, right? That's the danger, that you adopt a philosophy just because it makes you feel good, because it works for you. Well, a lot of bad things can work for you for a time, but at the end of the day, they don't work for you. You've got to find out what is really true. Um, there's a book called Chance of the Dance. Now, I wonder if anybody here has heard of Thomas Howard. Have you heard of Thomas Howard, the writer? What? You're my new hero, Tom. That's pretty impressive. Tom Howard... Um, become a friend of mine. But he wrote a book which sort of sums this up called Chance or the Dance. If you have an opportunity, I actually recommend it in the back of my book because it's one of these books that hardly anyone knows about. And it is just a classic. It's just extraordinary. It's very literary. But he talks about this idea of there are two worldviews. One is called Chance, right? That we sort of got here by mistake. It just, it just happened, right? Like it just happened that there's this planet with an atmosphere, you know, 20 miles deep that can support life. And, uh, you know, if you've read Velvet Elvis or you've read any of these other books, you'll know that, like, the odds of us being here, you know what somebody says, like, the odds are, like, one in a billion, right? There's not a number large enough to describe the insanity of our existence. Like, we should not be here. The odds say, you know, how, how many planets should support life? Negative five billion. Like, that's how many. None. None. When you, when you look at the odds, the conditions for life are so outrageously, uh, it, you know, it's like having, if there were 50 dials, right, and you say, now, they all have to be turned to exactly the right thing. If they're one millimeter off, the whole thing blows up, right? You know, w- what are the odds that, like, a, a monkey would be able to get that right, right? If you know math, you'll understand it's kind of a high number. Um, in fact, it's never going to happen, kids. Never. Um, that's the situation uh, with our existence here. And when you sort of understand that your very existence is a miracle. Now, I think when you look at this objectively, and we're not talking about accepting something on faith. People talk about accepting on faith. Truth is truth, right? Truth is truth. Uh, you may not be able to figure out every detail yourself. You might know, not know how electricity works. You, might, you don't know a lot of stuff, but you know what you know. And uh, when you look into truth, when you have a scientific mind or whatever, you, you understand that you don't have to fudge anything Reality is reality. Math is math. And, you know, the idea of our existence is crazy. We should not be here. We should not be here. Now, you live in a culture that says, that's not true. 
You live in a culture that says to you, you are absolutely, you're just here by accident. Now, whether, I'm not talking about whether you believe in evolution or not. I'm talking about whether you believe that there's a God behind how you got here, whether it was through evolution or through other means. The, the fact is that either the God of the Bible is true and real and created us, however he got us here. He created us. We were an idea, a happy, beautiful idea, a sunny idea uh, in his mind. And he created us, and he has a beautiful plan for us. And he brought us here, and he's going to take us someplace, and he wants us to know him. You know, either that's true, um, which Tom Howard describes as this great dance, the dance of meaning, that everything has meaning. The opposite of nothing having meaning, right? The opposite of nihilism, that nothing means anything. The idea that everything means everything. God created every atom in the universe. He knows where the electron is at any given moment. Think about that, right? Not just the electrons in your body. I mean, think of the idea that God knows where every electron is in the orbit in your body right now. Also, now. All right. Uh, and then not just in your body, which he, know, he knows where they are, but he also knows where they are in all of summit, every tree, every electron, in every atom, in every molecule, in every tree, in, every, in summit in the entire state, in the entire continent, in the entire planet, he knows where every electron is. Now, that's the kind of God we're talking about. Rather impressive, I would say, wouldn't you? That's impressive. And then you think of the size of the universe. Then you start thinking about this, it makes your, your head hurt. Uh, it really does. Either you have that kind of a God who has created a world where he knows you more intimately than you can ever imagine, where it all has meaning, uh, leading to him, leading to the joy of God, of Jesus Christ. Either that's true, or what the culture tells you is that, nah, that's, that's a nice idea, but that's not true. That's, uh, the reality is we, we just kind of got here, and we're making the best of it. And there's no shame in that. We're making the best of it. Um, but we need to be honest about that, that we're just uh, making the best of a bad situation, and we're trying to keep a stiff upper lip. Um, so, I know it's sad, right? So, at the end of the day, uh, and at the end of uh, what I'm saying now, you come to this idea that you cannot really, um, you cannot take ideas lightly because they all lead someplace. If you believe in the idea of chance, that life has no meaning, then it literally means that you can do whatever you want and it literally has no meaning. And most people say, well, that doesn't make sense. It does. If we had time, I could t- it means that there's no meaning, that there's no good or evil. Now, if there is good and evil, if the God of the Bible really existed and exists and will always exist, if he created you, then he says what's right and wrong and good and evil. And he says slavery is wrong. And he says to us, I know that it's wrong. I know that one plus one equals two, that truth is not something you vote on. I mean... What is, the, what, is, what is true? God is true. And everything flows out from that. He tells us what is true. Uh, in India in, um, in the 18th century, one of the things that Wilberforce was uh, involved with, an, another one of these huge battles, India as a culture was as far from Christian as you can imagine. And the, the horror uh, of some of the things that went on there uh, we cannot imagine. We always we say, well, I want, I want to be tolerant because we think like being tolerant is that's as close as we can get to being true. But what if somebody asks you to tolerate the burning of women alive? 
because their husband died. That's called sati, right? In, in India, a couple centuries, centuries ago, this literally happened. If you were a man and you died before your wife, your wife would literally be burned alive on your funeral pyre. That, that, that's literally, literally true. Look it up, right? What do you say to a culture that says, hey, this is the way we do business. Don't judge me. Are, are you not going to judge that? Are you not going to judge somebody burning a woman alive? I think that's where I would have to part company, right? I would have to say, uh, listen, I respect you as a human being. You're creating the image of God. I respect your right to disagree with me. I respect your right to have whatever religion you choose and to, to disagree with my views and whatever. But, but at the end of the day, I will fight to the death over this idea that you think either you can enslave a human being or that you can treat someone, that you can treat a human being as though she is nothing, that you're going to burn her. I will fight against that idea because the God that I worship says every human being is made in his image and he loves them and we don't have the right to, to do those kinds of things. So you realize that there's a, there's a clash of ideas. You can't tolerate all ideas. And what I learned at a place like Yale, although you learn it all through the cultures, there's this idea that somehow we can tolerate all ideas, that we have to hold truth lightly. But I would say to you as Christians uh, or as just thinking uh, people who are not Christians that you have to be intellectually honest and you have to understand that you cannot tolerate all ideas. There comes a time when you say, this is wrong. And someone will say to you, how do you know it's wrong? Who are you to tell me? This is my culture. Who are you coming in here, Mr. White Englishman, and telling me that I shouldn't uh, burn this woman? Who, do you, who, do you, who are you? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? If you don't know how to back that up, if you don't know that the God of the universe, who's aware of every electron at every moment, he's the one who says no to this. Put out the fire now in the name of Jesus. If you don't have that authority, who are you? You're just an imperial power imposing your worldview on another culture because after all, there is no truth, right? Those are the things I think as Christians we have to resolve for ourselves. Uh, did anybody uh, memorize any scriptures last week? Or a couple of weeks ago, I said that uh, I was going to uh, give you a challenge about memorizing a scripture. And I we wasn't even going to tell you what scripture it was. Couldn't be Jesus wept. That's too short. It has to be longer than two words. It has to be longer than the verse. Actually, I said a psalm. But um, I, I'm curious. Now, I, I failed. I did not memorize what I said I was going to memorize. So no, I, I, I'm assuming that everyone else failed since I'm so wonderful, right? Uh, but. Uh, I thought the idea of memorizing scripture, the reason it's important is because we have to know what we believe. Because sometimes things aren't as draconian as the idea of facing slavery or facing the idea that uh, we're going to burn a woman. Things are not normally that harsh and black and white. But every day, the reality that you walk through says, what do you believe? Do you believe what the, what the Bible says? Or you believe you're going to go with the flow? What if the flow takes you in some really bad places? What if the flow of the culture takes you in places that are really, really bad? Are you prepared to get to a point and you say, like, yes, th- this, is, this is bad. This is bad. This is not what is right. Or are we just kind of going with the flow because we don't want to disagree? We don't want to be intolerant? You know, I'm really glad that somebody was not tolerating slavery and burning of women 
among them. I'm really glad that some people were not tolerant, that they said there's a truth that stands outside of respecting your views. There's a truth. There's God says love everyone. And sometimes loving someone means uh, not just saying, I hear you and I appreciate your views, but saying to them, uh, here's a gun, step away. You're not going to burn that woman. Right? Sometimes truth says you're not going to let somebody do something really evil. And during the Holocaust, the same thing happened. You had a tiny group of fanatical Christians in Germany. Most of the Christians did nothing. They flowed with the status quo. And they said, well, you know, Hitler, he's kind of, He's helped us in some ways, and you know, no politician is perfect. And, and they just kind of flowed with it. But there was a tiny group of fanatics that said, we believe the Bible, we believe what the Bible says is true. If we have to die for our beliefs, we will die for our beliefs because we know Jesus is Lord, Hitler is not Lord, I will not bow the knee to the Third Reich. I believe these things. And so that's what I want to leave us with this morning. What do we believe? Uh, do we believe chance or the dance? Do we believe that Life is filled with meaning and joy, and that at all points, everything points to Jesus, to the good news, that God created you with a purpose and loves you and knows everything you've been through, every dark day, every dark thought, every depression, everything that has crushed you, every hope that still is out there that you're reaching for. He knows all that. He has a purpose for you, and he says, look to me. I love you. I will not let you down. I will not fool you. You are not a joke. You're my child. Do we believe that? Do we know that? Or do we sort of accept this other idea that we don't know anything really, we're just doing the best we can? And, and where will that lead us? Ideas matter. Um, let me close with a, with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we ask you, to have mercy on us and to reveal yourself to us that we would know how we can stand against the things in this world that are leading us away from truth, that are leading us to treat other human beings without the love and respect that these creatures who are created in your holy image deserve. Father, we ask you to show us what scriptures in your Bible we should memorize so that we can hold them in our hearts that when life confronts us with difficulties, with things that are painful, with hurtful situations, Lord, with situations that degrade us, that confuse us, and we can stand and we can say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or we can say, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Father, lead us to those passages of Scripture this week, Lord, as we're reading, that you would have us memorize, that you would have us commit to memory and hold in our hearts and walk around knowing that what the culture shows me is not necessarily true, but what you show me in your word is true, and I will hold that, and that that will buoy me through the difficulties, and that will be my sword uh, in the battle against uh, evil and human degradation. Father, we look to you and to you alone. Open our minds. Help us to be intellectually honest. Help us to be intellectually rigorous, Lord God. Not sloppy, not going with the flow, but to see the meaning that you have filled this world, every part of it, with. Lord, we ask this in humility and yet with joy in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you.